We're in a series right now on called The Peacemakers, and um, I'm going to read the passage of scripture that we're primarily going to look at today. I'm going to take you a few other places around scripture also, but we're in still in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemies and hate your neighbor. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. A couple years ago, I attended a conference in Tennessee. And at the end of the conference, we were instructed to select a key from large trays of keys that the conference coordinators brought out. I love this idea. I love the conference to start with. And so I love the idea of having something to take home with me to remember the conference by. And I loved having heard the conference. Um, I loved the idea of making uh, of, remi- of remembering that I am a key in God's kingdom. I don't wear a lot of jewelry, but I had the idea of selecting a key that I could make into a necklace, and then I could wear it and thereby remember the conference and remember that I am a, a key in God's kingdom. So I searched. There were dozens on this one tray that I was looking at. And I found one that was more like a skeleton key, which was pretty cool. And it had scrolls at the top of it. It was really cool. I I loved it. And it was um, the same kind of a silver that I knew I had a chain, that same color of silver at home. And so I knew I could just go home, put this key on the chain, and have my necklace. Then the keynote speaker explained that I was to partner 
with one other woman in the room. Someone I did not know, awkward, look her in the eyes, more awkward, tell her she is beautiful and she is a key in the kingdom of God. And while I'm doing that, I'm to place the key I so carefully chosen in her hands. She will take that key home as a remembrance of the conference. I followed instructions. I'm, I'm a rule follower from way back. But the whole time I maintained eye contact, I really wanted to look down at the key she placed in my hand to see if it would make as nice a necklace as the key I gave her. It did not. <laughs> I tell you this story about my selfish, immature, superficial response to what could have been a meaningful experience because we can pretty easily do the same thing with scripture. Some scripture passages are beautiful, calming, encouraging, and we like these. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with your whole heart. Or, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. How about, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Those are keys we can wear all day, every day. We can cross-stitch them and hang them on the wall to be encouraged. Others aren't so warm and fuzzy, like today's scripture. Matthew 5, 38 to 48. I'm going to be honest. I see a few here that were actually in my youth group, so you know if there's anything I love in the Bible, it's the Sermon on the Mount, and that's where we are. But still, Matthew 5, 38 to 48 is not destined to hang on my wall anytime soon. And yet, it is a key to God's kingdom. We started this series three weeks ago by reading the Beatitudes in, at the beginning of this chapter in Matthew. And you can flip back there if you want a refresher on the Beatitudes. It's verses 3 through 9. At first blush, the Beatitudes are sweet and full of promise. But upon further review, they are not easy. I don't want to be poor in spirit. I don't aspire to mourn. I want to be pure in heart. You've heard my key story. I'm not there. 
I want peace around me, but Jesus' idea of peacemaking, that's hard. People might misunderstand me. People might not like me, and I like to be liked. And as long as I'm being direct, let me say, I really don't want to be reviled and persecuted for any reason. When we walk with Jesus, we'd like to think it's a smooth road. But even though walking with Jesus is the optimal road to be on, he doesn't promise lollipops and rainbows. No, Pastor Dan told us the first week of this series that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically is saying the kingdom of God will win. And we will win by mourning, being persecuted, being meek, and bringing peace. At first glance, the 11 verses we're studying today seem to be broken into three parts. At first glance, probably two, because it's two paragraphs. The first is tactical information about retaliation. The next section is on love, and the final verse is an overarching mandate or call to us. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, in fact, throughout his ministry, Jesus challenges his followers to match up their external actions with their internal being. Having a checklist is easy. We simply need to complete the details listed. But in Jesus' eyes, our motivation behind the action is as important as the action itself. For the Pharisees, the action was the end goal. Complete the checklist. God said to do this, so that's what I'll do. But let's not aspire to that. The Pharisees were also referred to as whitewashed tombstones. Their actions were nearly perfect on the exterior, but inside they were dead. They were all act, no substance. On the other hand, John tells us in his gospel that God's motivation is love. For God so loved the world, he gave his son. And Jesus challenges our motivation. You have heard, but I say. He broadens the picture, and in keeping with this larger, overarching theme, we're going to start at the end of our passage, at verse 48, and we're going to work our way backwards. Verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I think it's safe to say Jesus does not expect us to achieve perfection in a comparable way to God. But he sets the bar high and he exhorts us to be perfect. Or as one writer said, to be unspotted from the world, different 
from those who don't know Jesus. The crowds listening to the Sermon on the Mount may have been mystified about how they could be perfect as God is perfect. But later in his ministry, you can read it in John 15, Jesus explained to a smaller group. Remember, the Sermon on the Mount was a very large group, a crowd of people. But later, in fact, on the night he was betrayed, he talks to his smaller group of followers, and he explains that he, Jesus, is the vine, and his followers are the branches. When we, the branches, remain connected to him, the vine, we bear fruit. We don't bear fruit because we want to, or because we try really, really hard. We bear fruit because of the vine. In agriculture, a vine has a system of moving fluid and nourishment from the soil to the branches. And in its season, the branches of the vine bring forth fruit. Spiritually, the Holy Spirit moves through those of us who are in Christ, and we bear fruit. Not because we try really hard, but because God has a system. He's looking for people to be branches, connected to the vine, allowing the Holy Spirit to work, move, and grow the fruit of the Spirit, which Paul defines in Galatians 5 as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. When Jesus says to be perfect as God is perfect, he is reminding us to have the mindset and motivation of God. And God is the ultimate peacemaker. From the moment of the fall in Genesis 3, God began moving all things toward the time he would bridge the vast chasm separating us from him. And when the timing was perfect, he sent Jesus to bring peace between us and God. The peacemaking Jesus teaches isn't resolving or removing conflict. It's so much more than that. My New Testament word study dictionary says this, peacemaker, the one who, having received the peace of God in his own heart, brings peace to others. He is not simply one who makes peace between two parties, but one who spreads the good news of the peace of God, which he has experienced. So remember Matthew 5, 9. It says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers, we who are in Christ and realize the enormity of his free gift of grace will be called sons of God 
when we point others to the Son of God. So now let's back up to verses 43 to 47. You have heard it said that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In his wisdom and goodness, God created in us an ability to love. In Matthew 7, Jesus acknowledges our ability to love our children. And in these verses, he agrees we are able to love certain people, most notably those who love us. And it's a beautiful thing when God uses the love of someone else to bring out better qualities in us. Yet in our nature, we are limited in our ability to love. But if we are going to be citizens of, the, of God's kingdom, we need to fully submit to the authority of God who reigns over the kingdom and let him move the Holy Spirit through the vine, through us, the branches. Again, the fruit of the Holy Spirit produces, what the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces includes a love that is beyond what we are capable of in our own strength. It's God's love. Allowing the Holy Spirit to grow a godly love in us helps us be unspotted from the world and allows us to demonstrate that spirit-grown love in our interactions with others. And when I mention our interactions with others, that brings us to the first section of this passage, verses 38 to 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, those were part of the law given in Exodus and Leviticus. And these people listening were very familiar with it. In my humanness, I kind of like it. It seems fair. 
and I am all about fair. At least if I or someone I love is involved. Outside that, my fairness scale can go down immensely. So if you do something um, that knocks one of my grandson's teeth out, I get to knock out one of yours. I get to. The law says so. Israel had taken those laws to be prescriptive. I get to. The law was actually intended by God to be restrictive so that if you knock out my grandson's tooth, I do not get to knock out all of your teeth and break your nose for good measure. It was meant to be restricted. They used it prescriptively. I get to. But instead of explaining that difference, Jesus says, you know what? Like, just, just don't. Don't retaliate at all. In, in fact, turn the other cheek. Old Testament law prohibited taking someone's cloak, which was the outer garment, and it was used for sleeping. So in a lawsuit or in um, a, a loan a agreement, the tunic was fair game, but not the cloak. They all knew that. But Jesus says, if they take your tunic, give them your cloak. Get out of your comfort zone. Go beyond the law. They were under Roman rule. And a Roman soldier could demand a citizen carry all of their equipment one mile. But that was it. I mean, the law said one mile. No more than one mile. And Jesus says, Go to. And giving to others, I mean, maybe, maybe people we know. Or, or maybe people who deserve it. I don't know. I can talk myself out of giving so I don't look, look silly. What if they spend it on booze? And while we're at on this discussion, why do we only use the word booze in the context of a beggar misusing a gift that we may, but probably won't, give? As if we have never misused a gift from God's hands. As citizens of God's kingdom, we cannot take justice into our own hands in any way. No physical retaliation, no legal retaliation, 
No greediness in holding on so tightly to the gifts God has given us. Instead, we are called by Jesus to act counterculturally by being connected to the vine. So the Holy Spirit moves spiritual nourishment through us to bear fruit. And remember, that fruit includes love, peace, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Acting through the Holy Spirit instead of reacting through our humanness sets the stage for peacemaking. Ultimate peacemaking. Showing Jesus to those around us so they can unite with God. When we, through the power of the Holy Spirit, choose not to retaliate, we open up conversations that would otherwise be closed. When you give the cloak, the recipient may say, sweet, I got the cloak too. Or he may be puzzled about why you would do that. And going the second mile is huge. Why? Because the first mile is on Rome's terms or the other person's terms. The second mile is on God's terms. Imagine getting to the end of the one and only mile you have to walk carrying all this gear. And the soldier looks at you and says, well, go ahead, give me my stuff. And you say, no, I'm good. Let's keep going. That sets the stage for a conversation during the second mile that could not have happened during the first mile. Why are you doing this? Are you trying to get me in trouble? No, 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 no. I am not trying to get you in trouble. My friend Jesus suggested it. Jesus? Yeah, Jesus. You don't know Jesus? Let me tell you about Jesus and his father while we walk. We can do that as citizens of God's kingdom. Because we are branches connected to the vine, growing fruit of the Spirit, we can act through the Holy Spirit instead of reacting through our humanness. And we can be peacemakers, ultimate peacemakers. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the free gift of grace you give us through Jesus, your son. Help us to hold it gratefully, but loosely, so we share it with others. Give us courage to be peacemakers so all can know you. Amen.
turn to page 885. We're going to respond with the modern affirmation of faith. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is one true church, apostolic and universal, whose holy faith let us now declare. We believe in God the Father, infinite in wisdom, power, and love, whose mercy is over all his works, and whose will is ever directed to his children's good. We believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God and Son of Man, the gift of the Father's unfailing grace, the ground of our hope, and the promise of our deliverance from sin and death. We believe in the Holy Spirit as the divine presence in our lives, whereby we are kept in perpetual remembrance of the truth of Christ and find strength and help in time of need. We believe that this faith should manifest itself in the service of love as set forth in the example of our blessed Lord to the end that the kingdom of God may come upon the earth. Amen.